Hi, I'm Dr. Morbaja, astrodynamicist, space environmentalist, and associate professor of aerospace engineering and engineering mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm Alistair Funge, space policy and operations engineer. I'm Dr. Christopher Newman. I'm professor of space law and policy at the University of Northumbria in Newcastle in the United Kingdom. I'm also international space law advisor for Cold Star Technologies. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. I listen to the Cold Star Project. And as a venture capitalist, you get to see a lot of pitches. All of them have the same curve. There's always a business model where, you know, you deep down, you have to invest. And then, you know, within two or three years, boom, skyrocketing, taking off and everything. If that is the case, of course, very nicely. But sometimes you see business models where you're like, okay, that's completely unrealistic. And where also the startups go like, yeah, you know, but you have to put this in. Huh. Yeah. So for me, that's always a little bit annoying to see because I'd much rather have like to have a realistic business model. Uh, maybe let's say a optimal worst case, realistic case, uh, those kind of things. And then also understand what the, the, the foundation is of this. Because, I mean, everybody can draw a, a hockey stick and then uh, something will boom and go explode. But, I mean... Welcome back to the Cold Star Project. I'm your host, Jason Kanigan, the founder of this thing, Cold Star Technologies, a data science, that means machine learning, and a process improvement firm, that means we make things run more smoothly and efficiently for other companies. I am here with Egbert van der Veen. He is the head of strategy and managing director at uh, of venture capital at OHB Group, and uh, he's been doing this since 2013. Obviously, I want him on the show because he's investing in space companies, and that's what we're all about here on season three of the Cold Star Project. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you very much for the invite. Well, yeah, it was it was a quick connection, and uh, I asked the question, "Hey, do you want to be on?" So you are a a uh, a scientist. You have the engineering background. Before you got into venture capital, you were a project lead at DLR, the German Aerospace Center, for four years, uh, working with them, ESA. Uh, European Commission in that writing, um, among other things, advisory reports on technology development trends. Uh, you have a master's degree in technology management from the University of Groningen. Um, <laughs> I see. This is my instruction to myself here. I'm like, why is it say in my notes, rasp, groning, and groning, right? It's how to pronounce it. <laughs> okay. That has been a little bit. Um, and your thesis was on forecasting disruptive space technologies, which, as you pointed out in the notes here, um, seems like whoop-de-doo today, but was actually quite innovative at the time. And so I want to dig into that. Um, so, so your scientific topic uh, in continuation of that master's thesis while working at DLR was forecasting disruptive space technology. So I am very curious what you learned and how that influences your point of view out here in the business world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, gladly. So um, just a little bit on the topic of disruptive space technologies. I mean, at the time it was fairly new. I mean, I think Clayton Christensen's book, on disruptive technologies and disruptive innovation just came out. Uh, and at that time, so I started, I think in 2019 uh, at the DLR, it was a big hype. Everybody was saying it, oh no, we should dis uh, invest into disruptive technologies. And nobody actually had any clue of what a disruptive technology was. It was a cool, <laughs> it was a nice hype name, but nobody really knew what it was. 
So at that time, uh, some people at DLR and ESA and DEC said, okay, okay, let's just bring a study out there and ask, okay, what are disruptive space technologies? What are the, the upcoming ones are? And uh, where should we put our money in in the future? So yeah, basically at that time, just fresh out of university, uh, or actually was still in university, was writing my master thesis on it, uh, thinking, okay, I'll, I'll tackle this subject. First, realizing at all that the disruptive technologies that Clayton Christensen at the time uh, 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 described does not all fully is not fully applicable to the space sector that much. Uh, we have a lot of governmental-driven innovation a little bit. Uh, so basically, government contracts are our main customers, and they basically drive also the technology through funds and everything. So it's a little bit of a mixed up uh, thing. So therefore, I decided to make a new theory and say disruptive space technologies. Now, just real quickly on what a disruptive technology is. Um, most people think if what, what, what most people know on technology development, you have this uh, this Moore's law. You know, everything always gets better, faster, and and uh, you know, chipsets go down, sizes, capacity goes up. And then what we found out is that actually most technologies do not develop that way. Um, what happens is that markets change, customers want different things, and then at some point what they used to want to have is not the same anymore that, uh, that they want to have in the future. So for example, it was a long time uh, a trend where people wanted to have for their uh, media, for, for, for music, they want to have better and better quality. And at some point MP3 came up and they were like, no, it's actually less quality, but you can basically take your entire library in your pocket. And it's a little bit of a, of a change. So it's, it's called a perceived customer uh, uh, value. And uh, yeah, so this, this basically changed then. And what we decided to do is to look in space. Okay, what is actually changing the market and what does that mean for technology development? Um, so, for example, new space, um, things became maybe not more complex, not more advanced, not more expensive, but it took the other way around, where it's like, okay, it's good enough, we'll just try to curb the price on it. Okay, so yes, you're looking to identify the driver of that, uh, of that innovation, where does it come from, and you're saying it's not more, bigger, better, faster, it's, uh, it's a change in customer tastes almost, or what, what, they're, what they mm -hmm. want. Okay, all right, so, and that is enabling you to look into the future, hopefully, <laughs> and, and predict those changes in, in behavior, is that what you're, you know, in preferences, is that what you're looking for? Yeah, so when you're doing a little bit, I mean, you look at these macroeconomic trends and so, and, and where are things going? And um, uh, for example, I mean, how does a market change? I mean, telecom is, is looking very different now than it did in 2009. I mean, you had these big birds, you know, and it was everything like, okay, we need to get the cost down and satellites are going bigger and bigger and bigger. And we look now, I mean, Satellites are getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Electric propulsion came into play also, you know, because of the launcher market changing. And currently you have a lot of flexibility within payloads as well. You have Leo, Geo, and maybe also Mio combinations. So basically everything, you know, did not develop the way it did. I mean, basically Netflix came up and all other kind of video uh, streaming websites and people do not require DTH, uh, direct to home transmissions that much anymore. So the entire market is, is off and uh, you have mm. to change, you check of course, which technologies fit with that changed world. 
Okay. And, and so spotting these trends. Um, I, so I'm curious now how you landed the role of managing director. I mean, it's, it's not science, right? I can see some of it, right? Nascently forming in your earlier studies, you know, what, what technologies <laughs> do we want to look at developing, but how did that happen? Um, so, I mean, I first did my, my, my basic scientific studies there, and then I found out that it doesn't really make sense as a scientist to, you know, think of what the next things might be. You really have to go out and talk to industry and to try to understand what, what they're developing, what they see as, as the next big thing. So I had a project then together with, uh, with OHB, and then uh, they thought, they said, oh, you know, this was a good job on the project here. Why don't you come join us and to become a technology manager for us? Which I thought was uh, was very interesting, of course, fit to my field of what I was doing in the past. Um, yeah, and then I uh, managed, well, I think about six years, I managed the technology development, so everything technology, uh, R&D, innovation uh, for our company. And uh, then last year, I, I was asked then, okay, do you want to move, let's say, away from technology and do strategy? And I thought, okay, that sounds very exciting as well. Uh, it's a little bit also future looking, so uh, that's very exciting. Yeah, and then um, because we are, let's say, as OHB, we are big uh, satellite integrator, so we're not usually that much of a venture capitalist, we're not a financial investor. Uh, we already had this uh, strategic VC already, uh, which we didn't really do that much with. And then the founder of the company asked me, like, okay, do you want to, do you maybe want to do that? And I was like, okay, sure, why not? Hmm. So uh, basically, it results a little bit of, of my other job as being head of strategy, and that the strategy should determine where we do our uh, venture capital towards. That is it then together. Okay, so there was kind of a bit of an evolution of the company as well um, as yourself, and and I think because you were there, you probably helped them have that capacity, right? It it may not have existed yeah. if you hadn't shown up. Uh, so uh, the OHB was about sixteen hundred people when I joined, and we're currently about three thousand. So mm. we have we have grown quite uh, lots quite and lots, in. yeah, of, mm. of folks joining. Okay. Your, your scientific career focused on innovation management in addition to space engineering. And so what does that bring for you to, when you're investigating, um, you're doing an analysis um, and making a decision compared to other VCs who might not have that background? So, I mean, I personally, of course, have the background that I know very well of how technologies and products are, are being developed and the experience of seeing what works and what doesn't work, so that's already at least good. Um, what What is good at, at OHB, of course, the link there that I don't only have my own expertise, but I also have the expertise of about 3,000 other space engineers, business developers, marketing, um, everything back behind that. It means that I get a very good, uh, let's say, possibility of doing very good due diligence, um, which of course helps quite a lot with that. So. Um, I think that is, is something that is, uh, is quite beneficial for, for me at least. Um, yeah. All right. So what, when you're looking, you're scouting, let's say, you're looking at potential um, companies to invest in, what do you look for? What would be the ideal discovery? So um, as we are a strategic investor, um, of course, our first criteria is that it fits to our strategy. Um, which means that um, 
I mean, we have a certain strategy of things, okay, this, where we say this would be interesting. Um, and that focuses mainly around uh, synergies that we can get. So those are synergies with uh, products, which means, for example, a startup offers a product that um, that we can't offer, but would, let's say, complement our portfolio. So we offer A and C, they offer B, uh, fits very well together. So therefore, we, we invest inside of this company. Or there's a, a synergy with, uh, with a customer profile. So that could be, for example, we deliver to Umed uh, Sat or let's say a very big organization or a customer of ours, and this startup tries to get in there. So we see that once we invest, we can help this uh, startup to gain this customer access, which means it's a little bit a win-win situation. So these kind of things is what we're always looking for. Um, that's basically just uh, the, the, the particularities of a strategic investor. Then, of course, on the other hand, I mean, there's money, let's say, standard answer, of course, we're looking for a good team, we're looking for a good business model, um, yeah, um, things like that. What's a little bit different with a strategic investor, of course, that we as a company, I mean, our, our company won't, let's say, fall or, or succeed based on the success of this one investor, so our investment. Therefore, we have a very long breath a little bit of a very long futuristic horizon, which makes it, of course, a little bit uh, bit nicer and sometimes also interesting for startups. Okay. How, how long does a, a fund live for, for you? Um, so, I mean, it's not that much of a fund. There's no, let's say, specific budget inside there that we will try to, to give away. That's a hmm. little bit different with another venture capital, mm -hmm. for example. We do is basically we only do opportunistic basis. So we we look at something, we look at it, we do very good due diligence, we check if it fits to our strategy, and then we 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 invest into that. Um, I think the VC has existed for 2000 uh, since 2015, perhaps. So I think five years. Uh, in that time, that's been variable. Sometimes we did years nothing, and sometimes we found an opportunity. Uh, Currently, where we're, we're investing quite a, a lot into is, uh, is a new company, a, a Rocket Factory Augsburg, which make launchers, for example. That's a new thing. Uh, currently, we also have a new strategy, which means that we're currently looking up to ramping up also our, our FEC investments. And that's mainly a little bit into, uh, uh, let's say, called downstream applications or services that result from space activities. Okay. What allows you to have that open-ended uh, sort of runway there? Is it, are you deploying funds that are brought in from outside investors or is it all internal inside the company? Um, it's, it's currently all internal inside of the company. Uh, we are, of course, open for that, but I think it makes more sense to co-invest with somebody else. Um, yeah, because, I mean, the good thing that we have in our company is that the ownership of, of OHP is 70% is a family-owned company, hmm. which means that basically you talk to one person, this one person decides. So at least, let's say, this allows us very much the flexibility also to, to invest on a very quick manner. Hmm. Therefore, we don't really need to look for external funding. That doesn't really help for us. But of course, we would like to, to co-invest uh, with, uh, with other VCs uh, because we will maybe not want to carry the, the risk all by ourselves. Right, right. Uh, where, what is the geographic range that you'll invest in? Um, mostly focused around uh, Europe and US, 
um, at least that's currently our search portfolio. We have the feeling that most things are, are happening there. Europe, of course, because it's close to us and we have customer access there. In the US, I think that there's often a little bit more risk taking, therefore more products being pushed out. Um, so therefore we're focusing a little bit on those lines. Of course, opportunistically open if a Japanese company comes or a Southeast Asian company and has a great idea, it's, it's not excluded, but at least this is a little bit where our search ratio is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Hey, this is Jason Canigan from Cold Star Tech. Thanks for listening in. I'm going to quickly interrupt the interview to talk about a new course I am offering for space startup founders. If you're a space startup founder and eventually you're looking at getting invested in, getting some of that good old venture capital pouring into the system, uh, then you're going to need this because I have done tons of one-on-one -on -one calls with space founders and discovered several consistent things that are just plain missing from their businesses. And uh, these things are so important that every time a VC looks at your pitch, they're going to say, nope, no thanks, bye-bye. And so if you want to avoid that problem from happening and actually get to the promised land of being funded, then sign up. All you have to do is go to this address and drop in your email and sign up for it. It's coldstartech.com SBM. That is for info about the course and the first part of it uh, will be given to you as it comes out. So go check that out. Do it now before you forget <laughs> if you're a space founder. And now let's get back to the interview. Now, you've got a note here in our um, Google Doc here that I use to set up these things uh, where, we, where we put in some question and answer notes and that. And you've mentioned this a couple of times, not just another hockey stick. You do not like the hockey stick curve. Uh, I find that very interesting, and I'd like to hear more about your take on it. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, as a venture capitalist, you get to see a lot of pitches. And um, all of them have the same curve. There's always a business model where, you know, you deep down, you have to invest. And then, you know, within two or three years, boom, skyrocketing, taking off and everything. Um, if that is the case, of course, very nicely. But sometimes you see business models where you're like, okay, that's completely unrealistic. And where also the startups go like, yeah, you know, but you have to put this in. Huh. Um, yeah, so for me, that's always a little bit annoying to see because I'd much rather have like to have a realistic business model, uh, maybe let's say a optimal, worst case, realistic case, uh, those kind of things. And then also understand what the, the, the foundation is of this because, I mean, everybody can draw a, a hockey stick and then uh, something will boom and go explode. But, I mean... Yeah, what's the actual ignition for that, folks? <laughs> yeah. All right. So I'd like to hear more uh, of whatever you're willing to share or not share, you know, about um, your experience with, with space founders and space companies. Um, like what state do they typically arrive at your firm at in? Uh, what mental attitudes do you commonly see in founders? Are there things that you wish that uh, you could sort of wave a magic wand and change in them before they show up and meet you? So, I mean, so for me, uh, what's very important a little bit that you uh, you understand what your customer is. I mean, you have to really understand the, the market where you're going into. I mean, this is also disruptive technologies. I mean, it depends at all I mean, what your market wants. Um, sometimes you really deal with people that don't have any clue of what their, their own envisioning market will look like, what their own customers need. Um, and this is yeah, I don't know. It, 
it doesn't even make sense to knock on a door. Let's say you at least have to have a, a let's say, letter of interest from a customer, preferably where they say, okay, if this is being offered, we will be able to pay this much for it. Um, that already would be great. Uh, or potentially even that you have, uh, let's say, customer co-investing already in this stage with us. That, of course, would be, would be great as well. But at least something there. Don't completely start with nothing. Um, I had a, let's say the, the last couple of months I looked very often at uh, let's say Internet of Things companies you know that, that provide machine-to-machine uh, -machine IOT you know with satellite and they usually business model is you know we we build a constellation we put it in orbit we offer our service via the internet and then boom there it goes um, this is, I mean, we know this business a little bit as well. OGB is invested into Orpcom, so we know how this works. And we know also what the difficulty is uh, with, with these kind of businesses. I mean, um, you know, 99% of their sales, or I think 95 or something like that, is being done over, over cellular networks. There is a little bit of extra coverage, which is done by satellite. But most of the turnover is just conventional business. And if you just say, okay, here, this is, I'll take market report of uh, uh, NSR and say this is a huge business and I'll be able to grab 10% of this and this is my business model, it's just not enough. You know, you have to really understand, okay, where are the current customers using this for? What's my unique selling point? What can I do better? What can I do differently? Uh, and also, what is the cost of my sales? I mean, if somebody implements a solution of a container tracking or whatever, um, it costs a lot of, let's say, effort for you to convince them to take your solution, especially if they didn't have anything in the first place. So, you know, it, it, it just needs to be a little bit uh, better worked out, let's say, how, how things like that work and how the market works, what are the customers, how much money or much effort do you need to spend on selling your product also. Uh, having a satellite system in orbit, um, which is a mistake that often people make, uh, I'll make a satellite constellation, once it is in orbit, it's going to sell itself. Um, unfortunately, space is complicated and nobody sits around waiting for a solution and Googles the internet constantly and then be like, oh yeah, that's what I need. So um, I think that's a little bit naivety in there and I think it would be good. But people at least re uh, acknowledge that and, and uh, uh, try to make a plan how to mitigate that then. Right. All right. Well, for the keen listeners uh, amongst us, you have just given a laundry list of items that founders can go get to present to you hmm. and other venture capitalists and that to demonstrate confidence in the idea. Uh, I have met and talked with, uh, done a lot of one-on-one -on -one calls with space startup founders, and I've been hammering on this idea of who's your customer and how well do you know them and that. And there is this great belief out there, uh, and it's a bad belief, that if we if we create the capacity or if we create the capability, just the technology alone will suddenly drive it. No, there is no if they build it or if you build it, they will come. That does not happen. Mm. Um, you have to get out there and, and line people up. What's in it for the other guy, right? And they will not understand it the way you do, founders. Mm. <laughs> they will not get it. Oh. They, they will just, I mm. mean, look at, look at how people use GPS on their phones. They, they probably don't even really know what's happening. Right? It's just the thing works on the phone and it tells them to get from A to B and that's good enough. They don't understand that there's something up in high orbit, uh, bouncing signals around and, and, and dealing with relativity, you know, like a Dr. Merrick Zebart would figure out. Uh, 
they, yeah. and they don't care. <laughs> you know, the majesticness of don't the care. solution. Doesn't make sense. Has, I mean, uh, it's, it's not their your end customer. I mean, it's also, I mean, the same thing. You have a farmer doing his field, he'll get some information. It could be hyperspectral, it could be, you know, infrared, whatever. And he doesn't care where it comes from. He, he uses it the way that it is. But in the end, to translate what he needs, so basically it could be he needs once a week he goes with a tractor. If you're building a system that provides an update twice a week, you're over-designing. So you need to fully understand, let's say, your entire value chain from the end user to check, okay, how does it derive any kind of system level requirements that I have? Um, and that is often a little bit missing. It's also very difficult because how are you going to get this? It's impossible to ask thousands of farmers how often they go on their field. But then you have to find the right persons that can tell you this. Yeah, um, we can get a sample. Know, we in can buy industry reports, right, um, hmm. from, from that industry. I'll bet you I could get that information. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a great point that you bring up about capturing the value chain. We hear this phrase, you got to capture more of the value chain, son, uh, a lot hmm. from, from investors in that. Uh, so, like, what does that mean to you? Um, so, so for me, I mean, you have to really understand your full value chain from the beginning to the end. So you have to understand, you know, if you make a constellation, you have to understand how the CubeSat or let's say, let's say you're doing with the CubeSat, you have to understand who the different providers are, what the different components are, basically what is possible to create with it. And then let's say I'm going in front as well, you have to understand, okay, who is going to buy my product? Who are their customers? Uh, who are they delivering to? What are their pains? And basically, you have to understand this completely. And um, that's impossible for, for anybody to know completely unexperienced by by heart. But that just means that you have to find the right people to be able to uh, to tell you these things or to do an analysis for you or something like that. You have to find your experts. Um, so that's always an advice also that I give to, uh, to, to startups. I mean, just don't be shy and go out and ask people the help that you want. Mm -hmm. I mean, you'll be amazed at how many people uh, love to give advices to startups and try to help them, even though, you know, maybe pro bono, it really doesn't matter. They love being, you know, with, with helping people and to, to get somewhere. And uh, I think you just, yeah, you shouldn't be shy and then ask uh, out there and, of course, very politely and <laughs> to make it formulated well, but you should go out and ask there and to, to evaluate, uh, to, to validate your own business case and to try to, uh, what they call it, kill your baby a little bit to also ask for critique <laughs> uh, and try to grow with that. Yeah, and I, I love what you're saying there. I'm gonna um, emphasize it. A lot of people, a lot of founders are afraid to go ask for advice uh, from other experts in that because they think, oh no, um, they're gonna want equity, right? They're gonna wanna cut. And uh, it's not necessarily the case. Sure, you might find people who are like that, but you will, all, you will find people who want to give advice. <laughs> but this is my warning to you. If you ask somebody for advice and they give you a little plan of action, please do something about it, act on it. There is nothing more frustrating for somebody trying to help to be asked for advice and, uh, and the person that, that gets the advice just fizzles with it and doesn't do anything with it. If you can do a little bit of work based on what they said and then come back to them and say, hey, Egbert, I took what you said, here's what I did, I went out and asked these people what's going on, here's the feedback that I got, Man, you would glow. You would be so happy, you, you know, and, and you'd give more. 
right? And it, I mean, that's one of the most fun things that I do as, a, as a, like giving free advice and that, right? Is when I find somebody who actually goes and, and takes my advice and comes back with feedback and they, they'll, t they'll like say things that will demonstrate that they did the work because they'll have problems. And the only way that you could have those problems is you started acting, right? <laughs> Taking yeah. action. So this is very cool. Um, you've also mentioned the business model uh, canvas here, which is a, a pretty common tool that we see. But um, again, some people don't know about it. And Michael Mealing had to remind me that it existed um, because they started teaching hmm. that after I got out of school in the 90s. Uh, it's a newer tool that, but once I looked at it, I'm like, okay, I know all these things. Yes, we we check for all. Yeah, these things. the whole important thing is to put a little bit together. But but you'll be surprised if, if let's say how many startups come to us and have not figured out what is my sales channel, what is my mm -hmm. value proposition, uh, all of these things, and it, it is important. I mean, yeah. at least to have thought about it and to to have a rough idea, but. Um, and you see that, unfortunately, quite often, where, where people just have not really thought it through yet. And uh, what you said also before, uh, I mean, it's great if, if uh, people come on and, and listen to you. I also had a, a startup that I was uh, mentoring at my time. And uh, at that time, I gave them a certain direction to go. I said, like, I, if I were you, I would go here. And they were stubborn, and they said, no, 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 we want to do it this way. And then a year later, he also invited me for a dinner and said, no, yeah, you are right. <laughs> We basically lost, maybe not a full year now, but we lost some time and now we're taking it your direction. And it's very nice. I mean, it's uh, it's nice to be involved in those things. I do it also privately and I don't do it over my work. Uh, but I think this is, I'm pretty sure there's a lot more people out there who would like to do something like that. They would love mm -hmm. to be involved in a startup because usually those startups have a certain kind of energy, certain enthusiasm. A bit of naivety, but that's also not too bad. You try new yeah. things if you don't know what's not possible. So, you know, it's, I think you, you'll be able to, to be surprised of how many people you can ask for advice and get it uh, without anything in return. Right. One of the things mm -hmm. that stood out to me uh, from, from uh, an answer you gave earlier was that idea of knowing the frequency of the farmer going out and driving in the field, right? Whatever that is mm -hmm. for your, the use case for your target market and knowing your customer and not overbuilding or underbuilding uh, the capacity or the delivery or whatever. Um, have you got any other examples that spring to mind of that sort of measure? Um, you mean for an application or right. for uh, right? That would that would help a, a technological creator um, figure out how to apply this this thing that they're making. Uh, so at some point, uh, in my time as a technology manager, we, uh, there was a huge boom of these electric propulsion. You know, everybody was doing electric propulsion, and uh, at that time. We had somebody saying, okay, this is the most efficient motor that you can buy. Um, it's very, very nice. Look at this. This is, you know, technically this is perfect. This is genius. And then what we, we, we asked them, like, okay, but what, where do you use it for? Like, well, what, what do you know? What do you mean? Well, like, so we said, okay, you know, this class will be interesting for geo. But if you use this, you know, it's very efficient, uh, it's very great, but it will not help us because you need to do spend uh, up to one and a half years doing your transfer, you know, and at that time you'll go through all the radiation belts and, you know, everything is shitty. You use one and a half, lose one and a half years that you can use for your 
for your satellite, so it's not really applicable for that. And it's, on the other hand, it's also not efficient enough for station keeping, so what is actually your use case? And then at that time it became like, yeah, okay, we have not really thought of this yet. So it's been millions of, of euros at, at that time was then invested um, into something where there's just not a solid business model for it. And you see this quite a lot. I mean, you'll be surprised at how many, uh, my, my, how much money is sometimes wasted by not really understanding an, an application for it. Well, very good. Uh, well, I I, I'm familiar with the software as a service world and, and we see that all the time where somebody gets a brainwave and goes out and creates an app. Some of my early episodes of this show, the Cold Star Project from season one are with uh, SaaS founders and that say the same thing. They create something nobody wanted. <laughs> they think it's great and then they, they have to go out there and find the market for it and sometimes they just can't and uh, and it's a struggle whereas if you went and found a problem and then created a solution for it that people were excited about paying for you would have a much easier time and that's not as difficult as it sounds it's just a different way of looking at the problem so Egbert um, I guess who should be contacting you and what would be the best route to do that um, so basically any, you know, startup, mid-sized company, something like that, that is interested in investment of OHB. So I'm also responsible for corporate development and, uh, and acquisition. So I don't only do uh, VC. So basically any company that says, okay, here, uh, I would maybe like to have OHB as an investor in whatever form is possible. They can just contact me. Uh, possibly the easiest is over LinkedIn. Uh, just write me a note and, uh, and, and we can exchange contact there. Um, yeah, and then uh, yeah, basically uh, anybody also has a great idea. I mean, what, what we also, I mean, as a, we also have a very big aerospace company. Huh? So if you're saying, okay, we uh, might not want to have an investment from RSB. So for example, you deliver very nice components, have a cool idea. Um, we often don't buy components because if we would invest to a company that buys components, makes it less attractive for our competitors. Therefore, we usually strategically don't do this. But on the other hand, we might find a, a way to, to cooperate. And so if you say, okay, we have a great idea, we could be great for your supply chain or something like that, feel free to contact me as well. So not only for, for investment related things, but uh, maybe to have a cooperation contract or something like that as well. All right. In general also, if we, if we invest in something, it would be, it's always easier if you're already cooperating together and you know each other for a bit longer. Uh, and you know what people are doing is good job work, let's say like that, then let's say for us, the barrier to invest is a lot lower, so. Okay, do you require for investing that the company be post-revenue? Um, no, no, no. Okay, okay. If it's a great idea, then, and yeah. it's also with space, it's so long until you, let's say, found it, make your product, until you go to revenue, it's a little bit different if you have, let's say, data application, but if you do hardware, it's, it's it takes a long time. Uh, and we better see possible. some of those letters of understanding, <laughs> letters of intent. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it could also be if you, if you say, for example, uh, OHB is a potential customer. I want to have a, a letter of interest for us. Then why not contact us awesome. as well? Um, we we have a very high interest to get all of these space companies <laughs> working and be successful. Uh, I think that our industry definitely has a lot of innovation, but it could be moved a little bit quicker ahead. I would say. So, um, yeah, anybody needs to help with that? Well, <laughs> okay. 
Well, that's cool. I'll, I'll definitely direct them to you. My guest has been Egbert Vanderveen, Head of Strategy and Managing Director of Venture Capital at the OHP Group. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to talking again. Hey, this is Jason Canigan, the host of the program. Thanks a lot for listening to The Cold Star Project. If you want me to send you new episodes of The Cold Star Project so that you don't have to go hunting around for them or watching YouTube or anything like that, go to this page, coldstartech.com MSB. That's short for Make Space Boring, which is what we're all about. And uh, drop in your email address there, and I will be able to do that for you. Make Space Boring is another little show that I run. It's a shorter format, quick interviews, and uh, news of the day, and sometimes an update of who I'm meeting and what I'm learning in the space field. It's on the same Cold Star Tech channel. Speaking of which, on the YouTube channel, I can do something I cannot do on the audio-only version, which is add playlists. And so there may be topic area playlists on the YouTube channel that you would be interested in digging into and going down the rabbit hole and learning uh, more about. For example, space law and policy, space situational awareness, the lunar mining and construction and fun stuff like that. So go check that out. Uh, that is at coldstartech.com play. That's the short link to get there. Anyway, thanks for listening and I look forward to talking to you soon.